Thank you, Salazars. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 93 this morning. If you're in first through sixth grade, you can slip out for our children's church service and also to practice for the Easter service next week. Just a reminder that service is at 10 a.m. There'll be no Sunday school, and then we'll be setting aside that evening because I know a lot of families will be coming into town for you to spend time with your family, so just a morning service at 10 o'clock next Sunday for Christmas. No, Christmas, Easter, I'm sorry. (laughs) Psalm 93. We lived in the mountains of North Carolina for many years, and driving from the camp that we ministered in down to Greenville, South Carolina, where I had family, We would drive um, through switchbacks and up and down mountains for about 30 minutes all the way to the bottom of the mountain. If you weren't used to it, you would most definitely get car sick. But for those of us who were used to it, we would sometimes make a game out of it. Not often as to how quickly you could get up and down. But about halfway between the wilds and the bottom of the mountain, coming down 178 down the backside of the mountain, there's a little sign that says this is the Eastern Continental Divide. It was identifying at that peak a watershed moment. Supposedly, I'm not a scientist or a geologist or whatever you would, you would be in order to, to truly test this and define it, but a, a cor- according to the sign, any rain that fell on one side of that mountain would end up in the Atlantic Ocean, and any rain that fell on the other side of the mountain would end up in the Mississippi River and eventually in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a watershed. It's, it's a point where you say, if, if I go on this side, this is true, and if I go on this side, this is true. And the concept that we're going to be looking at this morning is a watershed moment in your theology. That if you embrace this to be true, your life will end, and your, your view of God and your view of Scripture and your theology will end up in this basin. And if you reject this in its most fundamental truth, your life and your theology and your view of Scripture and your view of God will end up in this basin. Because there really is one truth that we hold as the cornerstone of our biblical theology. It is this truth that's the natural outflow of the nature and character of God and properly understood is the apex of Scripture. As we wrap up this short series through the attributes of God that we'll dip back into at a later date to look at some more attributes, we're going to end this short five-week series we've been looking at at looking at the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Next week I'll bring you a message specifically focused on Easter and then, Lord willing, following that I'd like to begin a journey through the Gospel of John as we take our church through that. But to finish our short series on the attributes of God, we'll bring the glory of God and the holiness of God to its apex in looking at the sovereignty of God. 
It's this truth, the sovereignty of God, that strikes unspeakable terror into the hearts of those who would reject God. And yet it is the same truth that brings immeasurable comfort to God's children. The sovereignty of God is woven through every passage of Scripture, from beginning to end. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. From cover to cover, the Bible gives testimony that there is but one king who sits on the throne of eternity and his name is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. This is a doctrine that we must get right. Because if you get this wrong, everything in your life, in your view of God, and the view of scriptures will fall into one basin of relativity. But friend, if you get this right, you will grab a hold of a God who loves you more than you can ever imagine and is working everything for the good of his children and for his own glory. What do we mean when we say the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God is the truth that God as the creator has the power and authority to rule all things in accordance with his will and that he does so. Always and without exception. There is no such thing as luck, fate, or karma. God is on the throne and he's ruling and reigning over all. When you come to grips with this truth as is taught in scripture, you will land on one of two sides. Either God is totally sovereign, ordaining, ruling, and disposing all things as he wills. Or, God has no control over anything, and faith in him is an utter absurdity. Because there really is no middle ground. Either God is in control, or he's not. Throughout church history, this doctrine has been the bedrock truth that has held the church together during times of flourishing and times of persecution. Thomas Brooks, the sovereignty of God is the golden scepter in his hand by which he makes all bow, either by his word or by his works, by his mercies or by his judgment. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, there was no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of the divine sovereignty of God. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. A.W. Pink, in his book entitled The Sovereignty of God, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight, 28. Setting up his kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. He is the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. 
Joel Beakey says, God is sovereign. That is, He is the supreme Lord who rules over all. This is one of the great doctrines of the Bible pervading its pages. It is the nourishing root of the believer's piety and comfort and the strong foundation of his hope. Johnny Erickson Tata, who suffered a debilitating accident, she says the following as a quadriplegic, nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a setback to his plans. Nothing can thwart his purposes. And nothing is beyond his control. God's sovereignty is absolute. Everything that happens is uniquely ordained by God. Sovereignty is a a weighty thing to ascribe to the nature and character of God. Yet if he were not sovereign, he would not be God. In all of these these quotes, these thoughts that I've shared with you from men and women from the past and present can be wrapped up in the first three words of Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Look with me at Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, but mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. God, as we look into the pages of Scripture this morning, would you comfort the heart of the suffering? Would you break the heart of the proud? And would we bend our knee to you as sovereign? I pray that you would open our eyes to your text. In your name we pray. Amen. In this text this morning, I'd like to show you God's sovereignty established, God's sovereignty challenged, and then God's sovereignty declared. So first of all, let's look at verses 1 and 2, and let's see God's sovereignty established. The psalmist announces unhindered, absolute, and complete sovereignty with the opening statement, the Lord reigns. I want you to notice that this is a present tense reality. God not only has reigned in the past, he not only is going to reign for all of eternity future, God is on the throne right now in this present moment. Notice also that the sovereignty is anchored in the very name of God. His name is Yahweh. I am who I am. The Lord reigns. His name reminds us that he has no beginning. I am. He has no end. I am who I am. He is the uncaused cause, the creator and sustainer of the universe. God is the definition of what it means to exist. His name, I Am, reminds us that God exists independent, not dependent on any person or anything. He is the great I Am. And the sovereignty of God is anchored not only in this present tense reality, of the name of God, but in his kingship, because the Lord reigns. 
God is currently sitting on his throne, reigning over all powers, both human and angelic. All powers bend the knee to God Almighty. All other authority that exists is a delegated authority given from God. This is a fact. Whether or not you submit to this truth has no bearing on the veracity of the statement, the Lord reigns. His sovereignty is established in His majesty. Look at verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has robed Himself is what the psalmist wants you to see. That no being has established this majesty on Him. This stands in contrast to every other majesty that you could ever experience on this earth. Either a person is born into a royal line, they are chosen for their position by the election of few or many people, or they take a throne by force. God alone robes himself in majesty. He reigns over all as a result of his nature and his position as the creator. No one can add to his majesty. No one can diminish his majesty. He robes himself. It carries the concept of God ruling from his throne. Meaning that it's a time of peace. He's sitting on his throne in his magnificent robe proclaiming his majesty as the sovereign of the universe. Secondly, it's established in strength. He has put on strength as his belt. Once again, there's no outside force acting upon God to put on this strength as his belt. No one else comes to God and strengthens him. No one else helps him in any way. He wins every war without the expense of any energy. He executes perfect justice and wrath on his own. The statement reminds us that not only does God rule in times of peace, but the God of the Bible is a warrior king who belts himself with strength in times of war. Exodus 15.3, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Isaiah 42.13, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. And so the psalmist here in verse 1 wants you to see that not only is God ruling from his throne in times of peace, but he has belted himself for war and established his strength. Thirdly, This sovereignty has been established in creation. Not only established in majesty, established in his strength, but established in creation. The psalmist says, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Through his reign in times of peace and war, God has established this world. Nothing can happen in this world to derail or thwart the planned purpose of God. God has created this world and everything in it. Therefore, everything in this world should be humbled before him. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
R.C. Sproul said there is not one maverick molecule in this entire universe. God created this world. He sustains this world. Spurgeon, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of the aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of the leaves of the tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. That God rules over creation. He has established his authority in creation. He's established his authority on this earth, meaning that every leader has been established by the sovereign plan of God. Romans 13.1, there's no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. This also means that all the events on this earth fall under the reign of King Jesus. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? His sovereignty established in creation also means that God reigns over his church. The final head of the church is not the members. The final head of the church is not the deacons. It is not the pastors. It is not the denominations. Colossians 1.18 And Christ is the head of the body, the church. This is why we are called the body of Christ. He is our only head and he rules the church. Our responsibility is to submit to his plan, to submit to the word of God. Either God is sovereign over all or God is not sovereign at all, friends. There is no in-between. This is the watershed truth of Scripture. Friend, you can know that every situation in your life, no matter how big, no matter how small, falls under the reign of Christ. He will preserve you. He is working every situation for your ultimate good and His glory. As was mentioned in the intercessory prayer, we have seen evil rise this week and are reminded that we live in a world that is cursed by evil. God Reigning on this earth does not mean that he is the author of evil, nor did he create evil. We know that according to James 1.13, 1 John 1.5, and 1 Corinthians 14.33, we can have comfort in knowing that evil is the opposite of God, and evil exists because sin exists in this world. And we can have comfort that God has allowed evil in this world and cho chooses to use even that evil to accomplish his purposes. How, Pastor Joe? I don't know. And we won't know till heaven. But you can be comforted that God sits on the throne and he reigns. God's sovereignty has been established in creation. Verse 2 shows us as well that God's sovereignty has been established from eternity past. 
Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Friend, in eternity past, through his eternal decree, God determined all that would happen. He executed his plan in the most nuanced way for the good of his people and for his own glory. His reign today is the same as in eternity past. Our triune God does not and cannot change. His throne is the same throne. His power is the same power from before creation. God cannot improve. He cannot deteriorate. Changing would involve some sort of outside force acting upon God and affecting him in some way. And God can't change because there are only three ways you can change. You can either get better, which God can't because he's infinitely good and holy. Or you can get worse because God can't because he's infinitely good and infinitely holy. Or you can change in a developmental sense to mature or age or develop in complexity. And God can't because he's infinite in every respect. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God from eternity past is the God to eternity future. Your throne, O God, is established from old. You are from everlasting. Verse 2. Have you bowed your knee to this almighty God, friend? Have you recognized that the same God who parted the Red Sea the same God who descended on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning, the same God who brought the flood and rescued Noah and his family, this same unchanging God is the God that we've been worshiping this morning. Perhaps you're here and your heart rebels against this truth. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you've been thinking of arguments in your brain of why this isn't true, of why you don't want it to be true. Maybe you're here and you're rejecting God for some lesser God that we read about in our Scripture reading this morning and you've been standing your heart against the truth of Scripture as it's been declared this morning. And my friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian and your heart is pushing against this truth as it's being proclaimed from the Word of God, you're not alone. Because verses 3 and 4 show us God's sovereignty challenged by the unsaved. Look with me at verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. For those who reject God, it is the concept of the sovereignty of God that the ungodly will reject. The unsaved world will accept a God of love, a God who accepts them as they are. The unsaved world will accept a God of humility and meekness and grace. Some will even accept a God of wrath, as long as that wrath is worked out against someone other than them. However, no unsaved person accepts accepts God's absolute sovereignty and reign. It is at this point... It is in this watershed moment that those who are regenerate bow their knee. The unsaved world says, my body, my choice. God says, his body, his truth. The unsaved world says, this is my life. Who has the right to tell me what I can and can't do? 
And God says, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. The unsafe world says you only live once, so live life to the fullest and fulfill every base desire of your heart while you have the time. And God says, be holy, for I am holy. It is this truth that the world challenges every moment of their existence. God's sovereignty is challenged by the voice of the ungodly, verse 3. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Often in the book of the Psalms, you see the unsaved world pictured as the, the, the ocean or the floods or, or, or water that's crashing against the throne room of heaven. Psalm 98.7, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Isaiah 57.20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. All those who reject God are pictured as a flood rising up in opposition to God to try to stay his hand, to try to thwart his purposes. We see this all around us today. You're labeled as homophobic and inciting violence for believing that God created the sexual union to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within the boundary of marriage. You are labeled as someone filled with hate to suggest that God created male and female. Stop. The world will say that you don't care for the health care of women when you stand up against abortion and stand for the rights and the life of the unborn baby in the womb. You are thought to be out of date and old-fashioned to believe that your marriage vows are for life and that your purity is worth protecting and that God requires holiness. The sounds of the world are roaring against God as the mobs of tens of thousands swarm the streets to protest God's rule and God's reign in this world. The floods crash against the throne room of heaven. They lift up. That word lift up has the idea of rising up against, as if when two people are going to get in a fight and they stand their tallest So the world rises up and it's roaring against God. And the way that the poetry is used between verses 3 and 4, your English translation brings it out with the floods, the floods, the floods. And then look at verse 4. Mightier, mightier, mighty. Used three times in your English translation, twice in the Hebrew. God is mighty. Though even the voice of the ungodly challenges the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God is also challenged by their actions. You see the waves of the sea, many waters in verse 4. These waves are the actions of the ungodly, not only stopping with their words, but working out their evil in this world as their actions continually 
fall against and bring a barrage of wickedness against the throne on which God sits. Even though these waves crash against the throne, God is mighty. In the ancient Near East, the sea was the most powerful and dangerous force you can imagine. There was nothing more terrifying than being caught on the open ocean in the midst of a storm. Still today, the ocean is unstoppable in its force. Anytime a tsunami threatens the coast of an island nation, the only thing that people can do is run for cover because there's no stopping it. My wife and I had the opportunity right after we were married to travel to the island of Saipan to be a ministry, to be a part of a ministry there that was training underground pastors to go back into communist China as they would come out of China for the island of Saipan and go through a year of training and then go back into communist China to to shepherd the flock that God had provided for them. We took a day and we walked along the coast and walking with someone who lived there in Saipan, we, we walked along the coast of the island and, and one area of the coast was just jagged cliffs. And, and the, the ocean, it was a stormy day and the ocean was crashing against those cliffs. And I remember standing there and watching the waves come in and it was deafening as you would hear the thunder of the waves and the water shoot up. Boosh! in front of you, over and over and over again. And you didn't dare go near the edge of the cliff because if you were to get swept off or, or fall off or for some reason jump off that cliff, you'd almost instantly be killed as those waves smashed against the cliff face. And their power was displayed in the spray and the mist and the foam that flew everywhere. But friend, as that water crashed against the cliff, there was only one of them that moved. And it wasn't the cliff. Because that water, as powerful as it was, had no force that was strong enough to move the rocky cliff. That although the waves came crashing and although they were deafening and their show of force was impressive, they stood no chance. And so the world, as she rages against God with her voice and her actions, and as the wickedness of this world rises to a tenor that would deafen the ears, as it crashes against the throne of God, God's throne stands fast. God's throne cannot be moved. The rising tide of the world is coming against the throne of God and as the waves of this world bombard his heavenly throne, the waves are the ones that break apart. Because God in his sovereignty is, verse 4, mighty. That word mighty means unmoving, steadfast, strong, 
girded with might. No matter how hard this world yells, no matter how hard they fight, friends, God is stronger. When you watch the news and you see this world setting itself against the gates of heaven, I want you to picture these waves crashing against the throne and the throne stands fast. There is no advance that's given. There is no damage made. God has already won. He will succeed in his purpose. For the Lord reigns. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be as it goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. empty. It will accomplish what I purpose, and it will succeed for that which I have sent it. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's sovereignty stands in the midst of the attacks of the wicked. And lastly, God's sovereignty declared through the pages of Scripture. Look at verse 5 with me. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. You see, God's sovereignty is declared to be faithful. That not only is God's word trustworthy, but God's word is very trustworthy. This word trustworthy means proven, reliant, faithful. It means permanent. There is no removing it. For God's word stands forever. It will never fail. It will never pass away. It cannot fall, for it is preserved in heaven. God's word stands. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you say, I know God's been faithful in the past. I can read the scripture and see that. I trust that God will be Faithful in the future, but it's right now that concerns me. It's what's happening today in my life. It's the trials and suffering that God has brought about in my life. Is God faithful today? You look to verse 1 and you see the Lord reigns. Verse 5, His decrees now are very trustworthy. This concept also carries with it the idea of God's power being incorruptible. It is often said that those leaders who hold absolute power will always be corrupted because absolute power corrupts absolutely. And friends, that may be true with every earthly leader who is tainted by sin, but that is not true about God. That his absolute power is held in holiness, as we see 
And the second part of verse 5, holiness befits your house. That one who holds all authority in his hand, if this God is not a loving God, is a terror. But a God who is robed in majesty and clothed in love and mercy and kindness is a God friend that you can trust. That you can trust. His holiness means that he's separate in every way. He does not wield his sovereignty and power like any human would wield it, it, but operates in perfect justice and righteousness. This holiness means that he is free from all moral impurity, that God has no hidden motivations, that God can't be bribed, that he always works out perfect justice in his holiness and in his trustworthiness. Notice a very practical application in the middle of verse 5. The psalmist says, holiness befits your house. What sets your house apart is that it is holy. And then God goes on to say, be ye holy, for I am holy. What is the house today? What is the temple of God? It's not the building that we meet in, friend. It's you. For God gives you the Holy Spirit as your possession from Him, given as a seal of redemption. And as one who possesses the very presence of God, this phrase should be true of your life. Holiness befits your house. That you keep your life far from sin and close to God as we live a life worthy of the God who reigns. It's declared holy and lastly it's declared eternal. O Lord, forevermore. There is no beginning to God's rule. There will be no end. And so, friend, the only proper response to a sovereign God who created all is to humbly bow before Him and accept His position as King. The Lord reigns. It's a truth that guides every aspect of our life. And it's a truth that we need God's grace to embrace every single moment of every single day. Though the world rises up in opposition, the Lord reigns. Though circumstances around me seem to be falling apart, the Lord reigns. May God give us the grace to believe that and align our heart with that this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the truth of Scripture that so clearly outlines your absolute and total sovereignty. May this always be present in our minds as you reign in the throne room of heaven, creator of all, sustainer of all, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
whose decree will not be thwarted nor tainted. Would you put us in our rightful position this morning as your subjects? Would you align our hearts under the truth that you reign? Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd just like to ask you to respond and reflect on the truth you've heard this morning. Friend, are you, are you here and you're not a Christian? I'd love to talk to you after the service. There must come a time in every person's life when they embrace the absolute sovereignty of God, when they bow to Him as their King, their Lord and Savior. If you're here and you're not a Christian, would you call out to the Lord who reigns and ask Him for forgiveness, to be reconciled to Him, Christian, would you be reminded of the sovereignty of God and align your heart in the proper way? You you do business with the Lord, responding and reflecting.